You know, society tends to classify people as either religious or not religious. The assumption being, at least by those who are religious, is that uh, they are the ones who bring pleasure to God. But that is not necessarily true. Not all religious practices, even many that fall under the cultural umbrella of Christianity, bring pleasure to God. Not everything done in the name of the Lord pleases the Lord. That was true in Jesus' day, and it's no doubt still true today. I think one of the most pointed examples of Jesus' disdain for the religious practices of his day was recorded for us by Luke in the 11th chapter of his gospel. There Jesus expressed woe, grief, over the practices of the Pharisees and the scribes. He first expressed woe over the Pharisees' emphasis on externals in religion, and then over the scribes' exclusiveness in religion. Let's take a look at the characteristics of their woeful religion and see if we can't identify their counterparts in today's religious world and perhaps even in our own lives. We're in the 11th chapter of Luke's Gospel. Now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. And he went in and reclined at the table. And when the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones. Did not he who made the outside... Make the inside also, but give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the front seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. Now, Jesus had just responded harshly to the Pharisees who had accused him of casting out demons by Beelzebul. They were probably already upset with him, but still a Pharisee invited Jesus to lunch, and he went. Now, I don't think this looks like a setup to entrap Jesus. They weren't above that, but I don't believe this was. However, the Pharisee was shocked by something Jesus neglected to do. 
when the wash basin was passed around for the ceremonial washing of hands before the meal, Jesus apparently passed it on without washing. And I think he did so figuring that it would give him the opportunity to say something that really needed to be said. And it worked. He could tell by the shocked look on the face of his host and the other religious guests around the table that they were horrified by his behavior. He got right to the point. Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. He was accusing them of being more worried about appearances, the externals of religion, than the condition of their hearts. You know, they were fastidious about doing the religious things that could be observed and make them look good. But they forgot that the one who made that which could be seen also made that which could not be seen. And he knew what they were doing. They were filling their cups and plates with ill-gotten gain. They were robbing. They were actually robbing those they were supposed to be serving. If they wanted to be right with God, they would have to do more, more than wash their hands. They would have to give back that which they had stolen. They would have to make sure that which was within was as clean as that which could be seen. And they couldn't just cover it up with religious behavior that looked impressive. Yes, they, they, they did better than our kids with their brownies today. They were tithers, and they were very careful to put God first. You know, the law commanded that all of God's people give one-tenth of their income for the support of the priests and the maintenance of the temple. And the Pharisees made very sure that everyone knew they were very careful to abide by the law through tithing. But they took it to extremes. You know, God had simply ordained a way, a way for everyone to, to give their fair share. You know, all could give the same percentage of their income without regard for the actual amount that percentage might be. That way no one could think themselves better for giving more than someone else. But the Pharisees had devised a way to make themselves look better than most. Rather than just calculate 10% of their gross, they counted out the seeds and the herbs of their gardens. You know, nine for me, one for God. Nine for me, one for God. Maybe they reversed it. One for me, no, one for God. They worked at it. The point is they didn't want anyone to think they were cheating God out of a mint leaf or a mustard seed. But they ignored justice and showing the love of God. Now, Jesus said they were right to tithe, 
But they were wrong to assume doing so gave them license to disobey God on the weightier matters that could be hidden from view. He also pointed out that what motivated them to make a show of their religion wasn't so much to please God as it was to gain the praise of men. They loved the front seats in the synagogue. And it wasn't because they wanted to hear the sermon. They just liked being noticed in church. And they loved the respectful greetings they got in the marketplace. They liked being set apart from ordinary people with titles like reverend and pastor and teacher. They thought they were better than everyone else. And wanted to be shown the respect that they felt they had earned. In fact, they thought they were blessing others just by allowing them to get in close proximity to them. But in reality, they were defiling those, Jesus said, who got close to them and wanted to be like them. They were like tombs full of death and decay that made unclean those who unknowingly walked over them. That's because they were teaching unsuspecting worshipers that what really mattered to God were appearances. To them, religion was all about externals, about looking religious. And Jesus, with dirty hands, made sure they saw it. They got it, but they didn't like it. And neither did the scribes, the experts in the Mosaic law who were sitting there. Let's read on. And one of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said, Woe to you lawyers as well. For you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. Consequently, you are witnesses, and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also, the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, in order that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in, you hindered. And we left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile (laughs) and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Now, this is a perfect example of if the shoe fits. Now, the lawyers couldn't believe that Jesus would criticize them. But what he had said to the Pharisees might be applied to them as well, and they were insulted by it. 
They opened the door and Jesus went through it. Woe to you, lawyers as well. Like the Pharisees, the scribes were concerned about the externals of religion, but their specialty was the law. They were the official interpreters of God's law. And Jesus was grieved by the way they burdened men down with the ridiculous rules and regulations they derived from the law. They made the law into something that no one could follow. No one but themselves, of course. They not only interpreted the law, they figured out ingenious ways to get around their interpretations of the law. But of course, since most people would never be able to understand the intricacies of the convoluted mess they'd made of the law, they didn't even bother to show others how they could follow it. They just left the common people to drown in a sea of religious rules that made them feel condemned by God. They made certain that people knew they were sinners. They told them enough to condemn them, but not enough to save them. They kept that knowledge to themselves. And they did something else that brought upon them a thundering woe from Jesus. They built tombs for the prophets that their fathers had killed. Now, Matthew helps us understand that by doing so, they were trying to distance themselves from the sins of their fathers. By refurbishing the tombs of the prophets, by honoring them, they were insisting they would have never killed the prophets. They were better than that. They knew better than that. They wanted everyone to know that they were better than those who had gone before them. But Jesus knew they weren't. They were in every way sons of their fathers. And God was going to prove it by sending more prophets and apostles for them to persecute and kill. And in doing so, he said, they would share in the guilt of all the righteous blood ever shed on earth. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, from A to Z. And they would deserve the judgment that God was going to bring on their nation in less than 40 years the destruction of Jerusalem. Not only did they think themselves superior to those around them, they thought they were better than those who had gone before them, but they weren't. That didn't keep them from trying, however, to assure an exclusive position for themselves by keeping from others what they needed to know about God. In fact, they intentionally kept the keys to understanding God's will from any who might have responded to it better than they. They, they took those things that kind of made it all fit together, and they hid them from the people. So they couldn't figure it out. They wanted the people to be in ignorance. They did not want the people to know God better than they did. They didn't want anyone to show them up spiritually, so they made the way hard. And they did everything they could to hinder 
the spiritual journey of those around them. Indeed, some people want a religion that makes them feel better and more in the know than anyone else. And sadly, some of those people are in the church, but not all of them. Dan Brown's latest work of heresy makes that very clear. You may recall his first book, The Da Vinci Code. In that novel, he attacked the church and exalted Gnostic teaching by revealing supposed secrets that he claimed the church had tried to keep hidden from the world. He attacked the confidence most thought they could have in the church and in the scriptures. In his latest novel, The Lost Symbol, he continues the attack by exalting Masonic teachings. He presents Masons as the guardians of a secret truth that has been known for thousands of years, a truth that was actually hidden in the Bible as well as most other religious texts, but kept hidden from the unworthy masses until he revealed it, of course. Let me share with you some passages that draw his 500-plus page novel to a close. Why do you think the Bible has survived thousands of years of tumultuous history? Why is it still here? Is it because its stories are such compelling reading? Of course not. But there is a reason. There is a reason Christian monks spend lifetimes attempting to decipher the Bible. There is a reason that Jewish mystics and Kabbalists pour over the Old Testament. And that reason, Robert is that there exist powerful secrets hidden in the pages of this ancient book, a vast collection of untapped wisdom waiting to be unveiled. Langdon was no stranger to the theory that the Scriptures contain a hidden layer of meaning, a concealed message that was veiled in allegory, symbolism, and parable. Our brightest forefathers, John Adams, Ben Franklin, Thomas Paine, all warned of the profound dangers of interpreting the Bible literally. Robert, the Bible does not talk openly. For the same reason, the ancient mystery schools were kept hidden. For the same reason, the neophytes had to be initiated before learning the secret teachings of the ages. For the same reason, the scientists in the invisible college refused to share their knowledge with others. This information is powerful, Robert. The ancient mysteries cannot be shouted from the rooftops. The mysteries are a flaming torch, which in the hands of a master can light the way but which in the hands of a madman can scorch the earth. Robert, you and I both know that the ancients would be horrified if they saw how their teachings had been perverted, how religion has established itself as a toll booth to heaven. 
how warriors march into battle believing God favors their cause. We've lost the word. And yet, its true meaning is still within reach, right before our eyes. It exists in all the enduring texts, from the Bible to the Bhagavad Gita to the Quran and beyond. All of these texts are revered upon the altars of Freemasonry because Masons understand that the world, what the world seems to have forgotten, that each of these texts, in their own way, is quietly whispering the exact same message. Peter's voice welled with emotion. Know ye not that ye are God's. A wise man, a wise man once told me, Peter said, his voice faint now, the only difference between you and God is that you have forgotten you are divine. The ancients had praised God as a symbol of our limitless human potential. But that ancient symbol had been lost over time until now. I'm not even going to address the heresy that God is nothing more than a symbol of our limitless human potential. The point I want to make, in addition to pointing out the heretical nature of Dan Brown's extremely popular novels, is that the church is not the only place where some exalt themselves over others by making religion into something that is external and exclusive. It happens in other world religions, in cults, and even in some fraternal organizations. But that's really not our concern. Our concern is that Jesus not declares woe against us for giving anyone the impression that it's the externals of religion that are the most important. Or that we have secret knowledge of God that's just too powerful for them to handle. Our job is to make the message clear and plain. Christ receives sinful men. Let's stand. Sinners, Jesus will receive. Sound this word of grace to all who the heavenly pathway leave, all who linger, all who fall.